Welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. families today, I want to invite you up, and then I'll tell everyone who you are. So I think there's four of us, right? Or four of you. So come on up, stand right here in the front, maybe two of you here and two of you on this side over here. So we have Aaron and Mindy and Max. Max and I have the same hair today. He's (laughs) and then we have Annie and do you have a child to dedicate? <laughs> so we will, <laughs> we're, we're hoping Jackson and Jude make it. <laughs> they're, s- they're on their way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's the life of a parent on Sunday morning, right? Um, we have Andrew, Michelle, and Eden. Hey, sweet girl, right here. And then we have, hey, Isabella. Hi. <laughs> yeah. We have Isabella, Edwin, and Hannah over here. And Ili- Isabella looks like she's a baby, but she's actually, how old are you, sweetie? Yeah, t- two. <laughs> this many. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to teach you guys a little bit about uh, child dedication. One, one thing is, this isn't baptism. We don't, we're, we're not a church that baptizes children here. Or, sorry, we're not a church that baptizes babies. We do baptize children if they make a profession of faith. Um, this isn't, this, so this isn't a children's baptism. You won't see us use, use water here. This is our conviction from the scriptures is that uh, we, we want to dedicate our children to the Lord. And, and this is coming out of the book of 1 Samuel. And so parents do this. All these parents, uh, they've decided that they want to dedicate their children to the Lord. And in 1 Samuel, Hannah not our Hannah, but a Hannah in the scriptures does this. And she's, she has a son named Samuel. And it says here in verse 27, it says in chapter 1, it says, For this child I prayed. So she prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me my request. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. And that's what these parents are doing this morning. They're lending their kids to the Lord and saying, Yes, we want to raise our kids in, in the ways of Jesus. We want to raise, raise our kids to be like Jesus. And so for you, for you parents who, who are <laughs> Isabella's like doing her own thing. Oh, it's, it's fine. No, let her, let her roam around. Uh, for, for you parents who want to do this, uh, I just want you guys to say publicly before the church, we do. So we do. Yeah. Was, oh, there they are. <laughs> yeah, you guys made it. <laughs> no. Yep, it's over. We're done. Go ahead. No. Oh, so there's, there's Jackson and Jude right there. Don't worry. We just started like a minute in. Uh, so these parents have said we do to that. The other part of child dedication is for the church. This isn't just an individual thing. This is about the community of faith. This is about all of us who call Trinity Life Church our home who are part of this family of God, this household of God. And so going on in this passage in 1 Samuel, Samuel 2, we see this. Hannah dedicates Samuel to the house of the Lord, and Eli, the high priest, takes in the child and says, yes, I will be a part of this, and I will help in raising up this child in the ways of the Lord. So for us as a church, now not all of you guys know everybody up here, but for us as a family of God, we have this, we, we want to say yes to this responsibility. In, in whether you work in Kid City and serve there, whether you're in their BLG, their small group, whether you're friends with these families, um, or whether you're just a part of this church and maybe sometime in the future you'll have a touch point with one of their children or, or them, we want to say yes to that. We want to say we do as well. So as a church, our commitment, part of this child dedication, 
is for us to dedicate ourselves to them, to say, we want to help you do this. So if that's the case, I'm not going to force you to say we do, but if, if that's the case for you, whose kid is this? <laughs> this is <laughs> if that's the case for you, well, I want you to say we do with me. So ready? One, two, three, we do. We do. Uh, and then the third part of this is for the kids themselves. So child dedication, this has nothing to do with salvation. And 1 Samuel chapter 3, or chapter 2, makes this clear. Because Eli's the high priest. He has two sons, and he has Samuel is now kind of his adopted son that he's helping to raise up. And his two sons actually rebel against the Lord. And Samuel, his kind of adopted son, ministers before the Lord, follows the Lord, hears God's voice, and, and pursues God. And so we see here that at the end of the day, it's the kid's choice. It's the choice of the child whether to follow Jesus or not. Us uh, as parents can say we want to raise our kids in the ways of Jesus. Us as a church can say, yes, we want to help in that. But at the end of the day, it's, be it's, between, it's between Eden and Isabella and Max and Jude and God. And them saying yes to God. We're not going to force that on them as a church. We're not going to force that on them as parents. We're going to show them what we, wh where our convictions lie in, in the right way. And we're going to reveal truth to them, hopefully, and hope that they hear God. But their relationship with God is not dependent on our relationship with God. We want to grow them up in a way where they hear from God like Samuel did themselves and develop that relationship. So for you guys as parents, you're not forcing your faith or your religion on them. Please don't do that. This is, yes, we, you want to raise your kids up in the ways of God, but... God never forces himself on us, so we're not going to do that on our kids. We just want to show them and guide them in the right direction. But they get to make their own choice. And one day, like next week, we'll be celebrating baptism. One day, hopefully, they'll, have, they'll choose to be baptized as followers of Jesus as well. So um, we want to say, we want to do a couple things to finish this out. We want to say a prayer of blessing over you guys. And we want to give you guys a gift, and just, just a gift of generosity to sh and then also to commemorate this day for you. But first, if, you are, if you're a family member of one of these guys, and again, I'm not going to force you to come up. You don't have to come up. But if you're a family member or, a, or part of their BLG or one of their BLG leaders, I should say, um, want you guys, I'd like you guys to make your way up so that you can gather around them and, uh, and we can pray for them as a, as a church. So right now, come on up. You guys kind of close, close the gap here. Come on, come on this way and close the gap here. And then we're just, we're going to put a hand on you guys physically. For those of you guys who are wondering what this is, um, this is just showing a sign of unity and and uh, both spiritual and physical for these guys. And then we're just going to bless you guys in the name of the Lord. All right, you guys ready? Everyone up here? Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you for this time. Thank you for this beautiful time where we can come together as a family of God and these families can come together and say thank you for what you've given them. Thank you for each of the gifts that you've given them in their children. Thank you for Max. Thank you for Isabella. Thank you for Jude. <clears throat> thank you for Eden and, and the joy that they brought, the, the struggles that they brought. Uh, Father, um, just continue to uh, bless these children uh, as they're raised in your ways. Bless these parents, Father. It's hard raising children. It's hard discipling uh, children. And, and so bless them with, we bless them with wisdom, we bless them with grace, we bless them with mercy. Uh, Father, the things that so often define us as parents, uh, like anger and, and um, uh, disapproval and, and things like that, Father, we pray that those would not be in here at all, that those works of the enemy would be gone, and that only things that build up your body, Lord Jesus, would be present in this time. And so thank you for these kids. Thank you for these parents who've said yes to you. Father, honor that. Bless them in that. And show us as a church how we can rally around them in order to help them raise their children and uh, to be followers of you, Lord Jesus. 
And we pray for their salvation right now for each of these four, that one day they will come to know you as the one true God and Jesus who you sent. And we ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, Courtney has a gift for each of you guys. You guys can have a seat. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Hannah and Edwin, th- this is why we dedicate them when they're babies, so they don't run around. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We've had so many instances where, where kids are running all around. You're not the first ones that's happened to. It's totally fine. All right, kids, kids in here, you guys can head off to Kid City where you're going to learn about Jesus and get cool snacks, and okay, they're gone. All right, bless you guys as you go. All right, yeah, have fun, have fun. So why don't, why don't we run to, like that to church, huh? Why aren't we like that? They're so excited to learn about Jesus. Is it because we don't have juice and goldfish in here? Maybe we should do that. Oh, we do. You, we do have, have communion afterwards, all right. So... A couple things, Let, uh, just a few things I want to talk about before we jump in. One is we are, you saw the biblical parenting thing. This, this year and probably into the future, we're going to start this series called 101, where we do different discipleship things, classes, equipping sessions, whatever you want to call them, seminars on Saturdays throughout the year. Like this year, I think we only have four or five planned, uh, but it'll be things like biblical parenting, marriage, finances, how to read your Bible, uh, maybe some different aspects of theology. I, I don't know. We haven't decided on all of them, but we're going to start doing these throughout, throughout the year. Um, this year, if you're a parent in here or an aspiring parent, if you're a parent in here, um, this is for you. But if you think you're going to have kids one day, this is for you. Uh, if you just want to learn like, this isn't just for married couples. Like, if you, if you uh, are single in here and you think, hey, maybe one day, or maybe I serve in kids' ministry, or maybe I want to help, help uh, these parents raise their kids, and I want to learn what it means to, to parent biblically, like, this is for you. So don't just think uh, it's only parents with kids. For parents with kids, it's almost too late for you. I can't change you now. <laughs> I can, only, I can only teach you how to mitigate the destruction that you've already done. I'm just kidding. Hopefully you can change still. <laughs> so that's, that's for you. We're not gonna, I'm not going to be able to give you everything in one session, but Missy and I are working on the content for this, or we will be, and, and we're praying into this and what to give you guys in, in a couple hours. It's only from like 8.30 in the morning to 12 or so. So it'll be quick two one-hour sessions with some Q&A and break time in there. Uh, we're also going to, to get you guys to come out that early on a Saturday, we're going to do breakfast together. We're going to do bacon, ba- yeah, bacon, bagels, and bubbly. <laughs> if bubbly doesn't get you out there, I don't know. It's going to be like mimosas. So, yeah, hopefully we'll, we're going to have a good time. If you don't want a mimosa, we'll, we'll have water too. So, uh, but we're going to have a good time. So come on out. It'll be fun. It'll be interactive and won't just be me talking like I will be doing for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> so, uh, the other thing is we're doing baptism next week. Baptism is going to be awesome. It's just a time of celebration uh, where we're going to celebrate God. And then one more thing is I was reminded this morning that I haven't talked to you guys about what we're doing globally. So I talked to you guys last year in December about my trip to the West Bank and what God's doing there. This year, we'll do two trips to the West Bank. I say we're doing one in March with a couple leaders. Uh, So Missy's going. She's going to help us figure out logistics and how to do things in the future and build a team out of of all the logistics and security that goes into traveling to the West Bank and being there in the West Bank. And then SAF is coming on the trip in order to figure out domain engagement for us. If that's a new word for you, 
Um, talk to me about it afterwards. I'm not going to explain it now, but it's how we do work in our city. We're going to do what we do in St. Jamestown, hopefully in the West Bank, through domains and, and engaging that way. So, uh, and then I'll be on the trip just to supervise, I guess. <laughs> uh, just and so three leaders in March. We're doing this in order to prepare a trip for October. So if you're interested in global engagement, if you're interested in, in working in the West Bank, look towards October uh, for, for more details on that. When we have it all worked out, we'll, we'll give it out to you guys. All right. We are in a series called Scriptural Spiritual Awakening. And this is kind of our theme for the year. Scriptural meaning the Word of God, the Scriptures, spiritual meaning the spirit of God, and, and then awakening. Like we need God, we want God to wake us up. We, want, we don't want to just live life like we've been living it. We want 2018 to be different for our church. I want 2018 to be different for you individually, and, and not for you guys just to live life complacently and lazily just going about your business. So we've been going through Daniel, because Daniel lives a life that is always looking for, uh, for what God is doing and who God is. So we're, gonna, we're in Daniel chapter 3 today, and we're going to go into an account there that shows us this. Before we get started, um, we take our girls trick-or-treating every year, and uh, I know some people have different things about Halloween, and we, we take our girls trick-or-treating because it's just, it's just fun, and we always have a good time. And we always get enough candy to last the entire year. So we kind of redeem the holiday <laughs> because we save on God's, we save God's resources. We don't waste them on candy. So we save God's resources and use them for other things. But actually, that might be different this year because Seth and Charmaine and Annie and Isaac came over and ate all of the girls' Halloween candy uh, in a meeting one night. So, and... I don't know if Cora and John ate much. They're more healthy than, than we are, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so they ate a lot of their candy. But we go trick-or-treating. Let me show you some pictures. I dress up with the girls every year. So we got Anna and Elsa, and this is the year of the bat. That's, that's Batman back there. Uh, the next year, we did Paw Patrol. You guys, if you don't have kids, you're not going to know what Paw Patrol is, so it's it's like paw like a dog, like paw patrol. Um, I used to think it was like paw patrol, like a daddy troll, but it's, yeah, it's paw like a dog troll. So they're, they're dogs, Emerson's Everest, and, and uh, Reagan there is Sky. I'm actually dressed up, it doesn't look like it, but I look just like Ryder, the, the guy on there, and um, that's why I'm wearing the track jacket. So next, next year, <laughs> so, I don't know who that creeper is. Uh, but so, yeah. So, I wanted to dress up as Nacho Libre. Anyone know Nacho? Okay. Um, but I couldn't find a cape and blue tights, so I went for Ramses. So, I'm dressed up as Ramses in the suit and the, and the mask. I was, like, scaring kids all night. <laughs> like, they're more scared of me than they were of the guy with, like, blood on his face and stuff. And the girls are just like fairy princesses or something. We went cheap that year and just found stuff around the house. <laughs> we spent more money on my costume than we did on the girls' <laughs> costume. So first year we went trick-or-treating. You can take that down now. First year we went trick-or-treating in, in Toronto. Uh, this was always Missy's favorite part. You get back and you go through your candy, right? Anyone love that part? You get back, you go through your candy, you're like, what do we get? So the girls, are, the girls are doing this, right? And they're looking at their candy. And there's a couple hundred pieces of candy there. Like, a couple hundred. We don't eat candy a whole lot in our house, so that's going to last a whole year. Um, and, and so we're, we're sitting there, and I pick up a Kit Kat. There's, like, you know, a little snack-sized Kit Kat, and I eat it. Kit Kat's, like, my, my favorite. If you want to know, like, give me a Kit Kat. It's, like, my, my favorite. So I, I eat it, and... You should have seen the girls' faces. They, it was like I did the most heinous thing ever. Like, they, like, freaked out, started screaming, and one of them started crying. They're, like, yelling at me. And my first reaction, or my first, not reaction, my first thought is to gather up all the candy and throw it in the trash right in front of them <laughs> and say, 
if I don't get any candy, no one's getting candy. <laughs> I didn't do that. I thought, this is a great teaching moment. So I just calmly said, I said, hey, hey, girls, where did you get all of this candy? And they said, well, we, we went out and we trick-or-treated. And they're saying, like, through tears, we went out and we trick-or-treated. And people gave us candy. And, and I said, well, who took you to get that candy? Remember, I, I dressed up. So I deserve some of that candy. Um, <laughs> they probably wouldn't have gotten as much if it wasn't for me. No. <laughs> so uh, they're like, you did, you and mommy did. And I was like, who has the power to get you more candy? And that's when it clicked for them. And they said, you, you do. And I said, well, if you want more candy, what do you have to do? What do you need to do? And they said, all we need to do is ask. And unfortunately, a lot of us are like Emerson and Reagan when it comes to God. We, we're, we don't realize that we have a God who is good, a God who loves us, that God is wanting to give us good things, and that all we have to do is ask. And we freak out when the candy, when one little piece of candy out of 200 pieces, when one little piece gets taken away from us because we're so focused on having things or having this thing or getting this from God. And we treat God like this. We, we treat God like Emerson and Reagan did, like he's taking things away from us. Not that he's a God who has all the power and can give us anything he wants to give us. And this morning, I want us to begin to understand God in a new way. And here's the bottom line for this morning, that once we, once we have a perspective on God's providence, and having that perspective, it will give us a proper perspective on God's provision. So a perspective on God's providence will give you a proper perspective on God's provision. A lot of us have that flipped we're so focused on God's provision, on what he can give us, on what he provides for us, that we miss who God is. And a lot of us view God as this uh, cosmic Santa Claus who gives us good things when we're good and bad things when we're bad. Or we view God as this cosmic genie who, who uh, only gives us wishes and, and we can ask God for wishes. Or, or we view God as our earthly fathers who are often distant and uninvolved and uh, treat us a certain way. God is not any of those things. God is a God who is good. God is a God who is loving. God is a God who is merciful. God is a God who is holy. And I can go on and on in describing God. And the only way we'll get to know who God is is a return to this book, to the scriptures. This is how we know what kind of God we serve. And this is why we're talking about scriptural, spiritual awakening. And when I talk about God's providence here, if that word isn't familiar to you, all I'm talking about is, is that God is over all things. That you're actually a part of something much bigger than yourself. And see, the girls in that illustration, they were so myopically focused on their own individualistic one piece of candy thing that they forgot the big picture. And God's providence helps us see a larger picture of what God is doing in this world, but how he wants to use you in it as well. So think about God's big picture. Think about God's, um, God's orchestration of things when we talk about God's providence. And think about it in the terms of you're a part of something much bigger than, than yourself. So let's jump into this passage. This is Daniel chapter 3. This is a really amazing narrative account. Uh, and so let's, let's walk through it. It says, we're not, I'm not going to read all of it, so just try to follow on the screen as I point things out. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, okay, remember, the people of Israel, or actually technically the people of Judah, uh, they are exiled. Babylon has come in and they have taken over the people of Judah. Actually, Babylon's taken over a lot of the world at this point, a lot of the, the Mesopotamian, like Central Asia, like, or Western area. 
So they're moving, and they've moved into the people of, of Judah, and now there's exiles in the land of Babylon. And so these guys are here. Daniel's there, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there, and this account is about those three guys. So what it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was about 60 cubits. 60 cubits is, is about nine stories. So this is a big image, nine stories tall. Think about that for a second. Just, just, just picture, just picture that. Like we're, if you were outside this building, we're like three. Now triple that. So nine stories tall, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. That word, he, he, those words he set it up will, re, will be repeated in every verse through verse 7 except verse 4. And, it's, and the author here is emphasizing that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, he crafted this with his hands. This is man-made, and he sets it up. And this is in, in, in contradistinction to the previous passage, where just in the previous passage, last week we talked about how Nebuchadnezzar, he dreams about, he has this dream about this, an, an image and this big statue. And the head is made of gold. And it gets destroyed by this stone that is not made by any human hand. This stone is made by the divine. And, and it comes out and it crushes the statue. And the statue is no more. And the stone fills the entire, entire earth like a mountain. That's the dream he had in the last chapter. Now we see Nebuchadnezzar. What does he do? He doesn't make an image just with a head of gold. He makes one fully of gold. He's, he's like rebelling against that dream. And he's saying, no, I'm going to make an image full of gold, probably one of their Babylonian gods, but it represents that god. It represents his authority, it represents his influence. And you guys are going to do something with this image. So he sets up this entire image kind of in rebellion to that dream. And the author says he does it, he does it, he does it. Uh, six different times. So going into, into verse 2 and the, rest of the, and the rest through verse 7, Nebuchadnezzar gathers a whole bunch of people, satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that the king had set up. And then this list again, all these officials gathered together for the dedication of the image that he had set up. And they stood before the image that he had set up. And the herald proclaims aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, O nations, and languages. So everybody in the kingdom, and this is, this is a vast kingdom because they've conquered a lot of different peoples and nations and languages. And he says, all of you, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, bagpipe, like there's a Scottish people here. Like when I saw that, I never actually seen that in the passage. But yeah, yeah, yeah Scottish. Um, I never really seen that in the in the passage before. And I was like bagpipe. I thought bagpipe was a, was a Scottish instrument. This is so random, but I googled it. I was like, is bagpipe a Scottish instrument? And it's actually not originated. It wasn't originated. They just kind of popularized it. So, yeah. Anyways, uh, so so bagpipe and every kind of music you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever doesn't shall be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And, and then he repeats the, the, um, the instruments again. And he says, when these instruments were sounded and every kind of music, every kind of music. So he lists a list and he says, oh, well, any kind of music. All the peoples, nations, languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that the king had set up. Why do you think that he lists it all out like this so many different times? The author's trying to do something really distinct here. One, he's showing us that everybody in the kingdom is, again, is, is for this. Everybody in the kingdom is for worshiping this image. And we see that at the end. It says everybody, when the music played, they just fell down and they worshiped. And what the author is doing here is he's showing us that there's a distinction between those who follow the world and those who follow God. We haven't seen those who follow God yet. We're going to see, those, see that in the next few verses. But what he's showing us here is that those who follow the world are often mechanistic 
conforming. They're just going with the flow. They're just, they're just moving along where the river's moving. They're just following the path of least resistance. And they're just doing what everyone else is doing. And the music is played, and they bow down and worship. What does that remind you of? A dog, Pavlov's dog, right? Um, it's conditioned. We're just conditioned. And it's showing us that in the world, we're just conditioned to follow the ways of the world. That it actually takes work not to do that. It's actually difficult not to do that. That when, when Nebuchadnezzar sets this thing up, because we're in the kingdom, and he says, hey, everyone's going to do this, and we're like, oh, okay, well, everyone's going to do this. And then we're all just going to bow down and worship. And what he's, what he's trying to show us here is that oftentimes it's, it's a very, the world works in a very mechanistic way, which means that a lot of times we're not even thinking about what we're doing. If I asked you this morning why you believe what you believe, would you be able to tell me? And now this isn't just a problem in the world. This is a problem in the church. And this is what's called epistemology. So if I asked you what, if I asked you why you believed what you believed, would you be able to tell me why? A lot of you guys, whether you're in the church or not, you've just grown up with beliefs. You don't know why you believe them, but they're given to you somewhere along the lines. Parents, schooling, um, friends. You learn things through relationships, and, and you were self-taught. Like, all these things, like, you pick them up somewhere. Religion, um, wh- whatever it is. And they become a part of you, but you actually don't know why you believe those things. And oftentimes when someone has a crisis of faith, it's because they don't have an epistemological foundation. They never knew why they believed what they believed. And for, for those of you guys who, um, and I would call it a crisis of faith, anything that, I don't mean just for the Christian faith, I mean anything that, that starts to make you question why things are the way they are. Like, why am I here? Why, what is the meaning of life? Why, why is this world here? What is my purpose in life? I would assume that most of us have asked those questions. But I assume that a lot of us haven't actually asked them and pursued those questions. Because those are scary questions, especially if we don't have answers to them. And when we ask those questions, a lot of times we're like, ugh, okay, ah, I don't, I don't want to deal with that anymore. That just makes me uncomfortable, and I don't know what those answers are, and I'm just going to live my life like everyone else does. And I'm just going to, you know, go to school or tr- try to get a job and be as successful as I can and be as comfortable as I can and live my life that way. And then you get on later in life and you're like, what, is, what am I doing? And then you push it away again, you push it away again. So what he's trying to do here is show us that there's a difference between those that follow the ways of the world, and it's this mechanistic way, this, this just, falling into, just falling into the path of least resistance way, and those who follow God which is a totally different way. Following Jesus, if you're going to follow Jesus this morning, it is not the path of least resistance. It's actually probably the path of most resistance, (laughs) a lot of resistance, because the whole world is against it. And we see here in this passage that the whole kingdom is against not worshiping this idol. It's against not worshiping this image. Everyone's just doing it. They hear the music, and boom, they're down worshiping this idol, this image that the king has set up. And for those of us who want to follow Jesus, we have to choose every day not to do that in our city. And idols are everywhere. And when we think of idols, let's, let's go into, let's, let's see in this next passage what, what uh, these three guys do. Because they don't, they don't follow the, everybody else. So in verse 8 it says, at, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Maliciously accused them. Like it wasn't easy. There were, there were hardships. Nobody else liked it. Anyone else saw them and said, Why aren't they doing this? There's something wrong with them. They're foolish. They're ignorant. They're intolerant of the rest of us, however, however our city says it. In verse 9 it says, 
they declare to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. And then they, and then they go into the whole music thing again. Uh, and then it says, Whoever doesn't do this shall be cast in the burning fire furnace. In verse 11, verse 12, Now there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province, and these men pay no attention to you, king. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There it is again. The king set this up. And, and here we have certain Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their Jewish names are um, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. We have these Jews who've said no. They're not going to just fall on their faces and worship this image like everybody else is doing. They're, they're not going to do it. And we have here a particular group, right? Because actually the king of the Jews uh, at that time, the king of Judah, Zedekiah, is one of those officials that bows down and, gives and pays homage to Nebuchadnezzar and to this idol. And these, these three say, no, even if our king does this, we're not going to do it. And, and think about idols here. Let me actually, let me show you this, this image real quick. Um, this is my favorite painting. It's by a guy named Rene Magritte. <laughs> Magritte. He's Belgian. Is Alex in here? No. Oh, Alex, this is for you if you listen to this online. This is your people. Um, Alex is Belgian. So Rene Magritte, he's a surrealist, um, 1920s or somewhere around there, has this, has this painting here. And Leticia, correct me if I say this wrong. Actually, don't correct me. I will say it wrong. Cecina pa un peep. Yeah, is that okay? She, she's like, uh. uh. It says, this is not a pipe. This is not a pipe. I love it. Because it's not a pipe. It's a painting of a pipe. Ah, you guys get it now? It's actually not the pipe itself. It's the painting of a pipe. It's an image. And this is what ha what, what's so interesting about idols, is that it's an image of something, but it's not the something itself. Okay, so uh, like, like for instance, Nebuchadnezzar set up this idol, and it was one of the Babylonian gods, and, but it wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have thought it was the god himself, but what do they end up doing? They end up worshiping what's not the thing itself, the idol. And this is how idols work. So we've, we've talked about this before, how, how we have idols of success or an, an idol of sex or relationships or marriage or family. Like these are things that take our, that, that we pour a lot into that take us away from worshiping God because we start worshiping this idea of success. But here's the thing, it's an idol because more often than not, you don't actually have that success. You're worshiping the idea of having the success. You don't have the relationship. You want God, or that if you're not a follower of God, you just want that relationship. And it becomes this all-consuming force and idol in your life, not because you have it necessarily, but because you think you need it. And you end up worshiping not the thing itself, but the image of the thing. That doesn't make it any better for those of us who actually worship the thing. Those of you guys who worship money because you have a lot of money. Those of you guys who, who worship your kids because you think your kids are the best thing ever. I have news for you. My kids are the best thing ever, so your kids aren't. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you th and, and you center your whole life around those things. And it begins to detract from your relationship with God, from you pursuing God, from you following God, because it becomes this, this idol in your life. And here we have this golden calf allusion to the Israelites where, where they've gone all the way back to being freed from Egypt. They construct this golden calf. And this is why God says, you shall not have an image of me. I don't want you to, he says the second commandment is, or the first one is, you shall worship no other gods. The second one is, you can't have an image of me. Because what ends up happening, if we made an image of, of God, a lot of times we would end up just worshiping that image and forget that that's not God. So he says, don't put me in that image. I'm way bigger than that. And here we have these three guys who say, no, we're, we're not doing that. 
And then Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 13, is in furious rage, and he commands those three to be brought. So he brings them before the king, and he says, Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? And then in verse 15, he says, Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound, fall down on your faces and worship. He expects them to. He expects them when they hear the music, they're just going to do what he wants them to do. And they don't. And he says, if you don't, you'll be thrown in this fiery furnace. And who's going to deliver you? Who's the God who deliver you out of my hands? He's taunting them and he's saying, I'm the only one who can save you right now. He's basically saying, I'm God here. There's no God who's going to save you. I'm, I'll, I'm the only one who can save you out of this furnace. And in verse 16 through 18, we see their response. And they say, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There it is again, that you set up, that you have set up. And they trust in God's providence over God's provision. You see that there? They say, our God can save us. He's able to do it. He's more powerful than you. But he may choose not to. And we're okay with that. Because we're not focused on God's provision, on what he does for us. We're focused on God's providence, on who God is. See, they would say, we know God is good. Not, we know God is good if he does this for us. Because do you actually, you can say God is good, but do you actually believe God is good if God's goodness is dependent on what he does or does not give you? No. You have to just believe that God is good. And once you believe in his providence and who he is in his character, then you'll see his provision in a whole new light. And then you'll experience freedom like you've never experienced before. And look at Nebuchadnezzar. He's filled with fury. And the image of his face changes. The expression of his face changes. And he orders the, the furnace to be, to be overheated as high as it can go. And he says, bind them up, take them into the furnace, throw them in there. So these men, they bind them up, they take them into the furnace, they throw them in the furnace, and the fire is so hot that those men who take them to throw them in, they die. They end up dying, and they throw them in, it says in verse 23, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound in the burning fiery furnace. And for a lot of us, that's where the story would end. Because we would die in there. Because we're so focused on God's provision and our faith was rooted in what God would give us, not on who God is. God is a rescuer whether he rescues you individually or not. He is. He just is. And, we, and they trusted that. And they knew that they were part of something greater than this life even. And so how do we as a church not let our story end there? Because the fire is going to come, and it's going to be hard, but how do we not let our story end there and be burned up by the flames? Two things this morning. One is identity. At Trinity Life Church, our vision statement, our mission statement, whatever you want to call it, purpose statement, I know they're all different things in business, so if you're a business person, don't kill me. Um, they're like the same thing for us. Uh, we say discovering your identity and destiny in Christ in order to influence our city and the world. That's what we want to do for you as a church. We want to help you to discover your identity in Christ and your destiny in Christ in order to influence our city and the world. And guess what? Your identity in Christ is the same as my identity in Christ. You don't have a unique identity in Christ. We're all in Jesus. Your destiny in Christ is the same as my destiny in Christ. You don't have a unique destiny in Christ. We're all to give glory to God. That's what we were made for. The way you influence our city and the world 
that is what's unique to you. Your passions, your gifts, your personality, all those things that God uses once you discover your identity in Christ, your destiny in Christ, he uses for, for his kingdom purposes and, and his glory and uh, to expand the gospel in this world. And so first thing we need to do is identity. You need to establish your identity as a servant of God, not as a supervisor of God. A lot of us think we're supervising God and we get to tell him what to do so that we're disappointed when he doesn't do what we, what we tell him to do. And that's a supervisor mentality. If you experience anger and frustration and disappointment because God doesn't do what you tell him to do, then you think you're over God, not under God. What these guys recognize in verse 17 is that they were servants of God. And in verse 18, they recognize their destiny that you need to realize that your destiny is to lay down your life for God, not just live your life for God. You're to lay down your life for God. And they're willing to do that. And they say, God, all of me, everything, all of me for you, I'm going to lay my life down, and I want you to do with it what you want. If you can do those two things and say those two things to God, then you will influence our city and the world. And that's what happens here. They begin to influence and they do it in a great way. Verse 24 says that the king was astonished, rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, didn't we, put, didn't we cast three men bound into there? And they said, yeah, that's, that's, that's right, king. And he says, but I see four men unbound, loosened, walking. And they're not hurt. And they're walking in the midst of the fire. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. It's, it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that this is a son, a son of the gods. Um, this is the son of God. This is, this is Jesus before he was Jesus, right, because he was born Jesus. But this is him as the son of God, the eternal son of God, making an appearance. We haven't seen anything like this in the scriptures. If you read through the, through the scriptures, you've never seen anything like this up until this point in the scriptures. So when you read this, this is shocking. This is like, whoa, we've been waiting for the Son of God to show up, the Rescuer to show up. All of scriptures have been building to this moment, and we get here and we see him rescuing them. And there's one, and this, there's one other place. I told my BLG on Tuesday night that um, we've actually never seen something like this, but we have. There's one other instance in the scriptures, Genesis. In Genesis 3, we see God walking. And here we see God walking. In Genesis 3, we see God walking in the Garden of Eden. And often when we think that, because it says we see God walking in the cool of the day, we think of it as peaceful, as, as um, you know, God's presence is here. And it's true. But where this passage happens in Genesis is after Adam and Eve's sin, not before Adam and Eve's sin. We have to think about it as God used to walk with Adam and Eve in the, in the garden, you know, when everything was perfect. But we don't see this verse until after Adam and Eve have wrecked everything. Creation was just like torn asunder. It was ravaged. Creation uh, is, is corrupted by sin. And now we see God in the midst of tragedy step in with his peaceful, beautiful, loving presence. Grace and mercy abound. And we see in this situation fires blazing and uh, a situation that is, that is tragic, people are dying, and he shows up again. Peaceful. They're just walking around in the midst of this fire. And in the last few verses, Nebuchadnezzar calls them out. All of the officials see this, and they see together that the fire, the, the scriptures say this in verse 27, the fire had not had any power over their bodies. Their hair wasn't singed. They didn't even smell like fire. Their clothes were all intact. Nothing. The fire didn't touch them at all. And Nebuchadnezzar recognizes, here's, here's where we see influence. He recognizes their God. And he says, nobody, he sends out this decree, and he says, nobody shall speak against their God. And then he promotes them to places of influence. And, and they, they start to influence and it's this beautiful picture of people discovering their identity in Christ, their destiny in Christ, in order to influence their city and the world. If you are going to be focused on God's provision, 
you're going to miss so many good things that God wants to give you. So much of our suffering comes from not just recognizing the goodness of God right in front of us. We're wanting something more. We're, we're seeking something else. We're saying, I want that, I want this. And God's trying to give us something else that's even better, and we don't even want that because we're so focused on, on God providing something for us. But if you're focused on God's providence, then you'll be able to see the bigger picture of what God wants to do. And you'll, you'll see his provision in a whole new light. You'll see his provision like you've never seen it before. You'll see his goodness like you've never seen it before. You'll experience his freedom like you've never experienced before. So this morning, if we're going to experience scriptural, spiritual awakening as a church, let's start to focus on God's providence, on who he is, not on what he can do for us, but just on who he is. And let's, let's agree to be surprised at what God wants to do for us. And, and here's the thing, if you're focused on his provision, you will always cower before those flames. And following Jesus is not the path of least resistance. And so focusing on God's providence and rooting our faith in that is key to influencing our city and the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. It is, it is trustworthy. It is praiseworthy. And, and it changes us. And so change us this morning by it. Show us show us more of who you are and spirit do your work in us this morning that we can say we are your servants and that we can say here's our lives now we can die to ourselves and live to you thank you so much jesus for all that you've shown us in doing that make us more like you this morning we ask in your name amen If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.